Today is Wednesday. It's May 3rd, 2023, and it's 2.43 in the afternoon. Hi, I'm John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast. We're all back. You can listen to me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. Portions of this will now more regularly be broadcast uh, Saturday nights on WGN starting at 8. Hi, I'm John Hanson of WGN Radio, CW26 Chicago and Block Club Chicago. Brandon Pope here with CW26 Chicago, host of On the Block with Block Club Chicago and host of the Making Podcast with WBEZ. New episodes dropping May 4th. I'm Austin Bird from the Illinois Policy Institute. You can listen to my podcast, America's talking. I'm Eric Zorn, the publisher and writer of the Picayune Sentinel and a weekly newsletter on Substack. So lots of guys here and lots of topics here. Let's start today with maybe Brandon. You just interviewed Mayor-elect Brandon. Pope talked to Johnson in person for about uh, half an hour. Is this going to be on your TV show? What's the deal there, Brandon? Yep, it airs uh, Thursday on WCIU on the block with Block Club Chicago. Uh, And it's going to span most of the show. We sat down. Down for about 30 minutes. We're going to cut it down for time. But um, we talked about everything. Crime within the city, his response, his statement he made about the uh, Millennium Park youth uh, situation that went downtown. Criticism of that response. We talk- talked about getting business back to Chicago, the economy, what he's going to do about NASCAR, what he's going to do about the Chicago casino, um, the Bears, if there's any chance of keeping them in the city, and affordable housing within the city. We talked about a lot of different issues. He's still very much uh, trying to get this transition process under control. And the best part is we were able to get comments and questions from residents within Chicago. Did you hear anything from him during this interview that maybe you didn't hear during all those debates during the campaign season because because they had you know a dozen debates and it seemed like these these uh, candidates both were on their talking points did, did he move off those talking points anyway He'd tell you well you know what i said this but you know I'm, that was a goal not necessarily a plan we talked about small business within the city and got into the invest southwest program um he's also got a few more fleshed out details on what he wants to do about the cta and transportation. Um, and Dorville Carter, the CTA president, tried to get him to give me an answer on whether he's going to can him or not. He said he still needs to talk to him and meet with him. I think it's safe to say that is a, a looming decision as people are awaiting some improvements to the CTA system. Just speaking so, of Carter, this is a little bit of a little bit of a tangent, but there was a story, I think it was in Block Club this week that Great story that he, from Block yeah, Club. I loved it was it. really he's like swiped his CTA card once in exactly. a year or something like well, that. It's like so twelve that, times in two years that he's like if but he but then they said, Well maybe sometimes he gets on and doesn't use his card. I'm like, <laughs> Oh yeah. He doesn't right. even go to city council meetings. This I I don't know anything about this guy, but I haven't read anything good. Like what value is he providing to the CTA. Somebody answer that well, question for me. Are we overblowing that? I mean, does, does it matter that the, that the CTA president rides? Tri- yes. Tri- or not? In 2021, he wrote it one time during a pivotal year when ghost trains, ghost buses were going through the roof. John Collars were calling in. You were dying in the CTA. It was never clean. John he Hansen, didn't feel secure. John Hanson, when's the last time you rode the CTA? I don't run the CTA. <laughs> <laughs> But do you want oh, to stop talk, stop stop spouting your mouth off about all this all these problems? <laughs> I think if I'm I think the manager of Target. Hanson's- if I'm the manager of Target, do I have to shop at Target? Well, you better not yes. shop at Walmart. I mean, yeah, so exactly. You, yeah. I agree with that. So Hanson- I think it can be overblown. I think it can be overblown. And if this agency was running flawlessly, and this guy net was like, I take a private car everywhere, no one would care. 
But the fact that the agency's in such shambles and this person clearly has no skin in the game. Yeah. It's like everybody's complaining and it's like, well, you're not experiencing it firsthand. You don't know the pain that people are going through. I think that's a totally legit well, cr- criticism. And I think it w- was great reporting to even seek uh, that out. Yeah. And, and, and Hanson's limo driver does take the CTA. So <laughs> to be fair about this. Yeah. So he and, goes, and he's late. He's always late. <laughs> you didn't see that coming, did you, John Hanson? You thought that was a safe line to throw out there and everybody ganged boy, up on you. Boy, didn't I? I just jumped right on him. I'm sorry, bro. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I know where you are right now. We're in two different closets in the same building. So, Well, but can we just go back to the weekend when the kids were wilding up Michigan Avenue and over by the Bean? It was by Millennium Park, right? Is that where mm-hmm. we saw a lot of that video where the police, by the way, were looking the other way when some kids were just getting stomped on. I, I don't understand that. But after all of that, he says, and I'll quote, in no way do I condone the destructive activity we saw in the loop. As though, whew, that's a relief, he doesn't condone it. What an odd way to start his statement. But he said, in no way do I condone the destructive activity we saw. <laughs> Who condones it? I'll read the sentence. In no way do I condone the destructive activity we saw in the loop and the lakefront this weekend. It is is unacceptable. It has no place in our city. However, it is not constructive to demonize youth who have otherwise been starved of opportunities in their own communities. And that's the one that got him in trouble, uh, to the degree he feels he was in trouble. But he still owns that. He wouldn't change a word of that? He said he wouldn't change a thing. In fact, he said people need to go back and read the statement, and all the criticism shows that they didn't read the statement, which that was an interesting way to look at it. Uh, so he, he seems pretty adamant that he thinks he he was striking the right tone. Um, he was not. He was that's just exactly the wrong tone. Somebody wants him to put out the fire. And, and this was a fire that weekend. And he's not saying we need around. You know, he, he did not say anything that would immediately deal with the problem on the street. Are we being too hard on a guy who ran a different kind of campaign, spoke about crime in a different way? Isn't he? I mean, I, I, I jumped up, up and He's down on him last week, but he is He's consistent. consistent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I won't have that. I, I think there were a couple of ill-chosen words in that statement, and, and one of them was to talk about demonizing these – I mean, and, and as, as I wrote, if, if – Anyone is acting demonically, I feel perfectly fine in demonizing them. I'm not demonizing all of Chicago youth or even all the youth who are downtown. They were a lot of them were just down there having a good time and not hurting or menacing anyone. But the kids who are breaking into cars and jumping on top of buses and so on, yeah, I think those I think that those those youth deserve criticism. And and he's also right that they deserve or they need to have activities for them and uh, and, and other outlets. In their communities, but the idea that somehow those of us who were aghast at what was going on were demonizing them and were unfairly demonizing them—that that really rubbed me the wrong way. And I know that a lot of people who I talked to it rubbed them the wrong way. And that's that's why I thought like <clears throat> just that just that choice of words right there uh, put people's teeth on edge. On the other side of the coin, though, I'll add you know there are people that found that statement refreshing. They've never heard a mayor advocate for kids in the city, for more opportunities for kids in the city the way he does. Uh, I talked to the people of my block, my hood, my city, um, and some other community organizations within the uh, Obama My Brother's Keeper Alliance, and they were pretty happy with Brandon Johnson's statement. They actually wanted, they, 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 this one person said, we've never seen a mayor talk so positively and with so much hope for our youth. I think you're seeing, obviously, some people upset with the statement, right? But there are people there that 
this is what they voted for, right? And this is well, what they you, want to Can you talk positively with. about the youth, about the 99% of the youth that weren't there? I mean, why use the moment and that's the thing. after that yeah. weekend to be like, oh, let's let's give props to the youth? And so, look, if I was his his publicist, I would have wrote a, a much better statement, I feel like, because I think the key word that was a problem was the however. That was a heavy lift. However, I mean, that right there kind of gives off a but a push aside, right? I just think that was a poor word choice um, because it does, that word implies, all right, got that out of the way. You're making too much out of this. Yeah, let's go on to, well, and I've, I long championed the idea of let's finally for once get at the root causes of these things. I mean, that's, this is of that ilk, so I get that, but I think there are times where you need to say something that, if nothing else, will convince people that it's okay to come downtown, that you're taking these sort of incidents seriously. In the meantime, people don't want to go to restaurants or shop downtown or do touristy stuff and spend money. Right. We have not had a nice warm weekend since then. It was several weekends ago, but it's been kind of crummy weather. and People have not come downtown, but it's we're going to have a, a long and hot summer. And the test is not what Brandon Johnson says right after he's elected or during the campaign. It's going to be what he says and does and what his uh, his police department does when this happens again, you know, it, <clears throat> later in May and in June and July. Memorial and, Day weekend coming up almost right after he gets inaugurated. Right. So so, I mean, to I am, you know, I'm I'm over this his statement. Actually, I was like I, and I, I like I said, I'm, I'm totally willing to give him a chance. And I think that John Williams is correct that that dealing with some of these root causes and, and thinking more broadly about Chicago's youth and what they're doing and what opportunities they have. I, I applaud all that. So. Uh, but there's also the matter of okay, what are we going to do in the next warm weekend when the, when the, you got thousands of kids coming downtown and if, and a few of them are causing a lot of trouble? What are we going to do about that? Yeah. That's a good question, and I and I I don't think that it, criticizing people who criticize them as demonizers is the right is the right foot to start on. But maybe that was uh, you know it was just a, a remark that he tossed off when he he's not the mayor. When he's the mayor, that's when we can really judge him on what he does and what he says. I bet you when the DNC comes to town, he's going to be rooting for snow. <laughs> let's let's do everything we can to just push people back and help him out. Good luck. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, you know the the man that he beat for this job, Paul Vallis. Some of his campaign workers are saying they did not get paid. Several of them spoke to the press. To at least I saw a story on ABC Seven. One consultant to the campaign was paid seven hundred thousand dollars, and Vallis is suing him, saying he didn't do anything. Now that guy's threatening to counter sue Paul Vallis. One political consultant whose responsibilities would have included removing those MAGA signs got paid $700,000. Vallis said he didn't do anything, didn't knock on enough doors or whatever. I wonder how often, by the way, campaigns don't pay all of their bills, especially when the candidate loses. It's the norm. Uh, It's the norm. And that's why uh, folks who work in that industry are often some of the slimiest people on (laughs) earth because they have to deal with folks not paying them. I think there was definitely, it seems like some shenanigans, especially probably in the last two weeks of that campaign, there was so much money flowing into his campaign in the final few days. If you're a political campaign, it's, it can actually be hard to spend all of it. So what you see oftentimes, I don't know if this is the case here is like people are skimming some stuff off the top to, to make sure that there's none left over. That's what you see that often in campaigns. So, I mean, I think there's some definite like, cynicism around well this is the guy who was supposed to be good with numbers and the financial plan it's like 
what do you th- you think Paul Vallis is like going through his books every day on the political campaign? Like that doesn't make no no candidate does that. There's other people that you hire to manage that. Of course, it all there's accountability is at the top, but I think this seems like one of those stories that probably goes away in two weeks. Oh, I well, think be, two minutes, yeah, because he wasn't elected. Yeah, the, but the misspent buck stops here. Also, you know that it, when you are running a campaign. You've got to have it's. You've got to have people under you who are keeping an eye on things. You've got to have trustworthy people. And yeah, it's not like Paul Vallis. He was. He was. Uh, he put on his green eye shade and he didn't see this. Well, no, obviously he wasn't looking at those numbers. He was running around, uh, giving speeches and and uh, trying to drum up votes. But the people who he hired who didn't follow up on this, uh, those are questions. But but uh, yeah, I, I think this is given that he wasn't elected. I think that we because I don't think Vallis is going to run for any office again, right? He's this is probably the end of his public career. <laughs> Hanson just yeah. went. Ah, it's kind of well, what he does. <laughs> bookmark that. Yeah, uh, I, I just want to know. <laughs> want to know how the heck did someone get a gig for seven hundred thousand dollars consulting for a mayoral campaign? Yeah, they run so a few months. Talk politics here. Why don't Why don't we do this? I mean, way you guys better than what we do. Deals? That does sound like I've just got too much money to spend. So I'm going to give you three quarters of a million dollars. See if you can help out. Wow. Uh, pull well, he, signs. He, I'll paint he, signs. What do you need? Well, <laughs> he was he was probably paying people under him. I'm, I'm guessing that was the deal was that yeah, he was going to yeah, hire sure. a bunch of people to go around and remove those signs. So who knows where all that money ended up. At, but at, you know uh, what they do, Eric. They say, well, but if you can't manage a campaign, how do we expect you to manage a trillion dollar city? And the issue prior to this wasn't money. It was social media. Remember the things that were getting liked and retweeted previous to and during the campaign for Vallis? Didn't Lori Lightfoot run into some of this kind of stuff too? And uh, here again, I don't know how consequential it is, but it does seem to speak to the candidates' ability to pick good people around them. What are we hearing about the interim police chief now? What's the take on this, Austin? I haven't. Have you guys heard any take on this person? I really don't have any any major thoughts on interim police chief. I think the the best interim police chief that Chicago will probably ever have, and I would love if he came back, was Charlie Beck because he was the head of the LAPD when they turned around that department from being the laughing stock of the nation and really a symbol of misconduct in the way you should not be policing into a place that passed its consent decree, has a lot of community involvement in policing, and has such better results on a public safety front than the city of Chicago. So, and way less police officers. And way fewer police officers. And way fewer it's police cheaper. officers. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and also in the on the discipline front, um, the union contract doesn't trump state law. So there's actually, you know, accountability when there's misconduct there. So I, I, I really think that you have to have a police chief in Chicago who has had that kind of experience of turning around the culture of a, of a large organization. Will the CPD, will, will the cops in Chicago respect an outsider like that? Will they follow somebody coming in from out of state? Like Gary McCarthy, right? Yeah, I think yeah. it's all. This is like any big institution, right? Like if you're working for a big company and some big shot comes in from from out of town, say you work at Twitter and Elon Musk comes in, right? You have to prove yourself as a leader, and that requires good leadership skills to make sure that people know you have their back. Um, if someone's coming in as someone who's like, "Hey, I want to make sure this is a good place to work and that you guys are protected and that we protect the people that we we serve." And that's rejected. That's a problem with the rank and file. That's not a problem with the 
Can someone refresh my memory as to why Beck left? I mean, who would want it? It was just interim. He was never expected that he would stay long anyway, but um, I'll bet they could have sweetened the pot. And I think he had a really hard time getting through a lot of the reforms that were in the consent decree. And that was definitely operationally in the Chicago Police Department. I think he encountered a lot of blocks in that job. That couldn't have helped. But I do also think it was always going to be a short term. Uh, Brandon, did you ask the mayor-elect what he's going to do about some of those positions like health commissioner and and the uh, police chief and who he, who, he, who he wants? We didn't get to talk about Arwady. He's previously said that he would fire her. I'm, I'm still curious if that would continue to be the case. Um, when it came to CPD superintendent, um, he's looking for somebody within CPD, um, somebody like a Fred Waller, but Fred Waller's already said he's not going to be uh, applying for that permanent position. Interesting thing about Fred Waller here, he kind of fits the profile uh, profile of what Brandon Johnson says he wants. Fred Waller's reputation within CPD, the years I've known him, has been pretty stellar. Like he's well 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 loved within the department, um, but he's also well loved within the communities he polices. I mean, this is a guy when you talk about the idea of community policing, he's in the neighborhood. He's a big part of the CATS program that they have. It's about getting into neighborhoods. Um, the kids know him. The families know him. He's probably one of the more well-known CPD officers around Chicago. So um, it's an interesting pick for sure. Um, he had some controversy. Um, he made a flippant comment on rape. He kind of likened it to something happening within the department did that in front of some city officials, and uh, that led to a few reprimands, and he retired shortly after that. So I wonder if that factors into the decision not to apply for the actual full-time uh, permanent position. But uh, his reputation is very interesting. So it's going to be interesting to see who Johnson taps, but he is looking for within CPD or some sort of Chicago adjacent. Let's uh, talk about the uh, migrant situation in Chicago, which is surfacing again. We asked our listeners at WGN Radio if they thought that the migrant problem, about 8,000 of them have been bused here from Texas. We saw a tenfold increase in April, and more of them are on the way. We asked if this is a problem that Lori Lightfoot invited, or just an inhumane political stunt by Greg Abbott, or both. And 43% said both. Only 18% put the blame solely on Lightfoot. Um, Are there any new wrinkles to this story, John? And what are you thinking about how this is playing out now? We report this as like a number, right? And at Block Club, they try and do a... Uh, we try and do a better job of actually following some of these migrants through the journeys that they've had, um, not only to get to the United States, but what happens in Chicago. Um, I think the city's just overwhelmed by the number, right? And no one can seem to agree on where is an okay place for them to go, right? You remember when the first round, uh, we had the Burr Ridge mayor, Gary Grasso, on a bunch because they were sent to Burr Ridge and they were sent to these hotels and it was an unstable situation. Um now the numbers over the last 10 days are astonishing, right? And the, the, we have controversy on the south side of whether we can put them in an old high school, right? We No neighborhood seems to – everyone seems to want to welcome them, but it's a very nimby situation, which is aggravating because – you know, we we want to be the sanctuary city. A lot of us want to welcome and try and find jobs for migrants who, by the way, are eligible to work as they seek asylum. Um, and many of them have found jobs, in fact, already. Um, I feel like I'm talking in circles, but I think the ultimate point is I think a lot of people want to help, but no one has stepped up and really come up with a plan that will make it work. Yeah, we want to help dozens of them. Right. <laughs> 10, 15, I'm, I'm little, whatever it takes. <laughs> I'm a little confused what people 
expect Lightfoot to really do. This is this is a really tough situation. This is really one of those where it's like the governor keeps bringing them in. We don't have the space or capacity to handle it. I think the estimate I saw was like it's going to cost twenty million a month to be able to to maintain the amount of migrants coming through. That's just not sustainable for a lot of cities. I, I don't know what solutions she possibly could have aside from what she's trying to do. Yeah. Find some abandoned places, some old places, and try to move things around as best you can. But this is just right, this but is she really on the governor, I would think. But she's not looping in local leaders, it seems, in these well, districts. Like the older people say they're blindsided by some of the decisions that are coming out, that they are not being forewarned or being looped in. And so then we end up having to pivot and change where we're sending a lot of these migrants. And I I don't know. I mean, I, I, know, I don't know what else she could do, but she's the mayor still. Get everyone in a room together and hammer out something. And, and, well, there's a sentiment that I've been following in the papers and some of the uh, letters to the editor and so on, which is that Lori Lightfoot and the city of Chicago asked for this when they declared themselves a sanctuary city. And th- that declaration was sort of easy to make when you're in the upper Midwest. Like you can preen about how welcoming you are to migrants. And then so Governor Abbott, using these human beings as pawns, decides to send them here with one-way tickets on the bus or the airplane. Uh, and just I think that what that underscores is that, first of all, it's easy to say you're a sanctuary city when it doesn't really put a lot of pressure on you financially. And now that it does, it, it illustrates that this is has got to be a federal problem. This is this is a federal situation. It's the United States of America situation, not a Chicago or Illinois or Texas problem. shouldn't be. And that the resources need to be there for these people. If we are going to have asylum seekers in our country, the United States government has made the decision that they're going to be here. So the United States government needs to really step up and fund what's necessary. We're, we're on the cusp of Title 42 expiring, which was the CDC's direction that they could uh, limit who even can seek asylum while they're in the United States. Once that gets lifted, once the pandemic officially declared over in, what, a week from today or tomorrow, May 11th, who knows how many more people could come in. And I got to agree with what Eric is saying is that why is it that Texas, Arizona, California have to shoulder the entire burden of this? And I talked to some of the migrants when I covered a story a couple months ago when um, Chef Mike Earhart was feeding some of these migrants. He was He's a local activist for unhoused uh, Chicagoans. He was driving, and he drove every single day for a month with his truck and cooked food for them outside of their hotel for 30 straight days and nights, cooking them lunch and dinner. Anyways, I was talking to some of these migrants, and they said – the bus ride was the best part of the trip, right? It was not this inhumane cattle loading situation that a lot of people felt. A lot of them were giving cell phones. They made stops along the way. They were given stipends to make sure they were fed. And they got to a city that is actually closer maybe to where they ultimately want to end up. And I'm not trying to defend Governor Abbott, but I the, the ones I talked to, that was the easy part of the trip. And there's just no answer to this federally. And you have got to place some blame on President Biden for sure. Yeah, I think it's a downstream consequence. And I'm there's very few things I think the federal government should do about anything. Uh, One of the things they have to do is actually have like an orderly process for people leaving and coming into the, the country because it's cruel to these people to put them through such chaos. Um, It's amazing that they're able to come and build a life in America. It is truly the lifeblood of our country. But to do so in this way, while also um, engendering anti-immigrant sentiment because it's so disorderly, 
And because people don't know what to do or how to deal with this, I think it's just a total abdication of responsibility. So one of the things that I mean, and obviously this is a politically calculated move, and obviously these people are being used as political pawns, and th- and that's that's shameful. At the same time, if you read that letter that Abbott wrote to Lori Lightfoot, yeah, he's basically saying, yeah, in El Paso, there are thousands of illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants coming into this town monthly, weekly. Oh, he said the number uh, was 13,000 a day he is said, what they're getting in Texas. He said it could be, he's, I, which I think is probably a hyperbolic number. I think he was going to say it when Title 42 expires, we could have 13,000 a day. But yeah. the point is, you, you have a little town like El Paso that's dealing with far greater numbers than the city of Chicago, right? And what do you do as, as a leader in that situation? And the reality is, without federal help, you are going to end up taking those people and sending them elsewhere. And guess what? That's what Chicago is going to do. That that's the only real like short term solution is the city of Chicago will bus migrants elsewhere, um, which is, I, I think, uh, also not solving the problem in any kind of way. So, yeah, I think a total abdication <laughs> of responsibility. You're saying look for, out, for look out Rockford is what you're saying or what? <laughs> uh, yeah. Who knows where? I guess I don't know where Chicago. Well, I mean, you're, you're have a actually... score to settle with anybody. I don't know who, <laughs> where <laughs> who they... we mad at. Yeah. But yeah. It, it would have yeah. been better if Abbott had also then. I mean, I think he scored some points in that letter. He said, isn't it ironic that um, a city the size of Chicago can't handle 8,000 people when whatever the number is, smaller towns are being asked to handle far many more without 100% federal subsidies of these problems. So like, yeah, Chicago. But if if he wants to make that point, then he should have sent some of those people to Oklahoma City and Indianapolis Absolutely. and Lincoln, Nebraska, and he didn't. So he clearly has a political agenda, no matter, John, how nice the bus ride was. Yeah, I, let me just also add an addendum that emotionally I can't imagine what that's like being sent through. The chaos of just being put on a bus and thrown somewhere. I talked to a few limited ones. I don't want to paint their entire picture that way, but um, fair point. And I would also say, just to to underscore the point on the federal government controlling that, I'm a. I think immigration should be 10x. I think we should we should have many more people. It's just that it can't be done in this kind of disorderly way because the backlash effect of that is far less immigration to the United States, which we we need. We need yeah, we need. You're saying we need to increase the immigration load to fill jobs, if nothing else, right? Yeah. Pay social Absolutely. security taxes. That sort of thing. It's just one of the most annoying things that 70% of Americans agree that we need immigration reform that ends up bringing more immigrants to work in the United States. And it's one of those 65 to 70% issues that we cannot get done. So where's Dick Durbin on this? Where are the Democrats in the House and Senate? If this is a federal solution, Eric, then where where does it even start? It has to start at the White House and Congress, clearly. And they have to figure out what the needs are, where the needs are, and and meet them. I mean, I, I you know I want to go back to what Austin was talking about about El Paso. You can't add, say that well, it sucks to be a border town. You've got to deal with this with this all those expenses of a of a United States government policy. It's not like El Paso set the rules and then they, El Paso couldn't deal with the rules and now El Paso is trying to fob it off on somebody else. No, El Paso just happens to be right there on the border. So, so yeah, I mean, it has to start. It has to start in Congress, and I have not heard Durbin or the, our congressional delegation. I haven't really heard much from Pritzker about this either, in terms of actual concrete plans. And it is, you know, it's it's an Illinois, it's a Cook County, it's a Chicago problem, just because it happens to be located right in Chicago right now. All right, I got an idea. We build a wall. We start it in California. 
And we go all the way across the southwest border and we make it an impenetrable wall, a tall, a really tall wall. Somebody sent me a note today, said, you build a 50-foot wall? He said, you show me a 50-foot wall, I'll show you a 51-foot ladder. <laughs> Is it true that we maybe learned that lesson? You know, whatever you think about the, the wall, um, it, it can't be done. It can't be done. That's not a practical solution to the problem. Do we agree on but, that? No, I don't. I actually – I was having a conversation with Leland Vittert, who you know, John, on uh, News Nation when I was filling in once for Lisa. And we have differing views on immigration. But uh, we – like I feel like the only solution that will ever work is if you give Republicans everything that they want on security and wall and funding – and then Democrats get what they want on paths to citizenships and opening up more immigration. I feel like that is the only solution that will ever actually work because both sides will get something that so they want. So you do that. You would trade, say, DACA for a wall, huh? something like that. Yep. I, I could probably live with that, too. I mean, we've spent money on dumber things. Maybe yes. a wall would work. Maybe it wouldn't. But all right, I'll give you your wall. But now let's have let's immediately patriate a lot of these people, huh? You might be able to work a deal like that, except that it's a lot of money being spent on a wall that is not going to be all that effective. I mean, I, I don't forget what the I forget what the statistics are, but the number of, of illegal or undocumented people entering the country that actually cross the border where there would otherwise be a wall is pretty small. Most of them are coming in through, through other means, so I don't know that how effective that would be anyway. So, yeah. so maybe maybe John Hansen's right that we just throw a lot of money and say, look, here's your billion-dollar wall, and now you're going to give us DACA, you're going to give us these other, other uh, things that we want on our wish list. The Tucker Carlson line that may have got him fired, I've got it here. It's a short paragraph. Maybe I'll read it. Maybe I won't. But, Eric, what was your take about Tucker's? I know you guys talked about this previously, but we didn't have this paragraph. What, what was your take on that? Well, you'll have to reread the paragraph because I don't remember it. Uh, I, and I do remember, though, this is not how white men fight, which is, I think, right there. That's is the one I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, the, oh, just that that part. And the he's all talking about how I really wanted them to beat the crap out of this Antifa guy, that yep. part of it. Yeah. It's inexcusable. And also this whole idea of like, when you talk, when you say something like, this is not how white men fight, uh, there is some, uh, it was certainly racist and and white supremacism in this in a statement like that and I'll, my guess is that fox saw that coming and that's why he's gone i don't i'm not sure that it was calling fox executives a c-word in private communications but i think this was extremely toxic and i i'm betting that he's not going to be able to find uh, anywhere close to a, co- a commensurate job with his former one at one of these other outlets because well, there don't isn't be a commensurate s- job the, the, the other networks are are b players or c well, players yeah, they they are, but but some of them these like Glenn Beck still does okay with his his podcast and his radio show. So, but but I think that that he's made himself even more toxic. That, that, do, do you think they would be like? like but if you said, hey, do you believe that Tucker Carlson is capable of saying this thing or thinking this thing or even texting it? You know, digitizing. I go, yeah, and I'm sure they knew it too. It's interesting. He was their top performer, their top money maker. Why would you hire the guy to begin with? But you've made that deal with the devil. You all seem to be pretty good about it. Here's the quote: A couple of weeks ago, I was watching. This is the text that he sent to a colleague, perhaps the most shocking. I'm reading from New York Magazine. 
uh, has been a racist one. Carlson sent to producers hours after the Capitol riot January 6th. He said a couple of weeks ago. So this wasn't then describing the January 6th thing, but just something else he saw. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching video of people fighting on the streets in Washington. A group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid and started pounding the living SHIT out of him. It was three against one, at least. Jumping a guy like that is dishonorable, obviously. It's not how white men fight. Yet suddenly I found myself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. I really wanted them to hurt the kid. I could taste it. Then somewhere deep in my brain, an alarm went off. This isn't good for me. I'm becoming something I don't want to be. The Antifa creep is a human being. Much as I despise what he says and does, much as I'm sure I'd hate him personally if I knew him, I shouldn't gloat over his suffering. I should be bothered by it. I should remember that somebody somewhere probably loves this kid and would be crushed if he was killed. If I don't care about those things, if I reduce people to their politics, how am I better than he is? As though he knows anything about this kid anyway. <laughs> which he doesn't, he well, lives in Maine, so you would assume he's been to Boston, which is literally, that is literally how white men fight in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> so besides the racism, just a pure logical reading of that makes no sense. Interesting take there. Austin didn't see that one coming. Uh, Brandon, what's your thought? I feel like this is the, I I actually, I guarantee this is the tamest text message you're going to find from Tucker Carlson. When, When they said this text came out, I'm like, oh, what could it be? What could it be? And I'm like, wait, that's it? <laughs> really? The really? dude says worst on his show. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, like this is what this is what did it the white men how white men fight i'd also love to sit down with tucker carlson and break down how do white men fight how do white <laughs> people fight like give me a whole ethnic breakdown of how the fighting styles of each i think I'm, we put up I our jokes we, 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 we just came up with a new mortal Kombat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> mortal Kombat three Race Brandon, rule. We adhere to uh, we adhere to the Marcus of Queensbury rules. Yes, I know. <laughs> and uh, we, we fight in a in a, in a fine circle, bare knuckles, with our fists up like that. Why I oughta? One one. Yes, I know. You know what's weird though? If you strip out that phrase, this is the way white. This isn't the way white men fight. It may be the most humane text that Tucker Carlson has ever sent. I get the that. idea. You know what I mean? Like. I almost, if you took out that one sentence, okay. it's him recognizing what a lot of us have recognized, that we need to do a better job of humanizing people that we don't like. Oh, that's generous of you. But I, I get the point that he is speaking about his conscience, which is calling upon him to be a better version of himself. But that's only one of the angels. The other one on his shoulder is saying, beat the crap out of that guy. I hope you kill him. I mean, I, I don't have that conflict. I know I make mistakes morally or ethically, but I don't think I'm ever watching some kid get kicked to death by three guys and going, yeah, and he's sending this in a text message to his producer. And what a long text message. Yeah. It was so long. Again, like, another no. take I didn't anticipate. So, so, <laughs> it's too and long. And by the way, it's like, this it's like racist rant, it's a little longer than I need it. Edit. Wowzers. It's like your parents texting you. It's like, oh, my God, please well, break this up. Come on. I don't need the whole story. At least it's not a phone call, which is even worse. You know, do we have to talk about this? Can't I just read it? <laughs> 
Hey, Tucker is Tucker. What has the group's thought about the crash on I-55 south of Springfield during what appeared to be just sort of a flash dust storm um, about 20, 30 miles south of Springfield on I-55? Suddenly it wasn't a whiteout. It was a blackout. People couldn't see, and about 60-plus vehicles were involved, and about 30-plus trucks were involved. Seven people died. Three dozen people were injured. And we two of the bodies so evidently incinerated they can't identify identify them. It it looked like one of those um, highways that got strafed in a war. It was just tangled wreckage. And you wondered how it could happen. And you wonder about how fast some of those vehicles were going and how maybe some of these drivers, maybe these trucks, you know, borrowed some trouble by not slowing down enough. Now the Clifford Law Firm in Chicago is asking anybody that wants to sue to contact them, and they've already heard from some potential clients. So that's where that story is today. Um, I don't know. What, what, what do you guys think about that one? Well, the, the interviews that I saw just on some of the local TV stations down there with people who were in it was that it came on really, really quickly and that some people – put on the brakes and slowed as quickly as possible. And other other people were evidently maybe trying to speed through it. Like it's just, it's just a, a, a cloud passing over the highway and we'll just keep going and go right through it. And and uh, and that's what caused the problem. People speed all the time on that stretch of 55 from from Springfield to Chicago. It's, it's like that's an 80 mile an hour stretch often. So I'm not sure who's going to be sued and what kind of proof they're going to have to to sue people over you know you got to have have data that shows how fast people were going but i'm guessing those trucks were going right along with traffic and at least a few of them thought they could just power right through the cloud but uh that's all i can gather from but whatever. like put your put yourself in the driver's seat in that moment i don't know what you're supposed to do do you hammer the brake someone behind you is going to get hit do you move over to the shoulder do you slow down gradually like it's it's like like driving through those snowstorms where you white knuckle it for a long time until you go. This is not worth my life, but it's more sudden. And I honestly, like, what are you supposed to do then? Well, stop, I, keep I mean, going, you're, pull you're, over. You're, you're right, but with with a whiteout situation, usually in a snowstorm, I've certainly been in them where it, it just sort of slowly gets worse and worse. You're going, you're going thirty miles an hour, then it gets worse, then you're going fifteen miles an hour, you're going ten miles an hour, you're creeping along. I get I get the sense that this came kind of almost out of nowhere. Right, and right. You're absolutely right, John. What do you do? All of a sudden, you can't see anything. You say pull over the shoulder. You might not even be able to see where the shoulder is. But the suggestion here is that while the Eric Zorns of the world are going 30, 20, 10 in the whiteout, when that does happen, Eric, you know you're getting passed by people in their SUVs. There's always somebody, sometimes in an old Pinto, and they're doing 60 miles an hour in the left lane. You go, how do you survive? How do these people live, like literally don't crash? right in front of you and the semis do that sometimes too maybe because they feel like they're safer i mean that's that's what they're going after here the suggestion is that while some people might have slowed down to save their skin clearly some people were going too fast and and we're doing so intentionally that is they should have known better this clifford law guy we were talking to said that the measure that they're supposed to adhere to trucks say eighty thousand pounds that need a considerable distance to stop is 600 feet that if they're doing 65 miles an hour they should measure 600 feet in front of them as a reasonable distance for them to be able to safely stop and and i said to him that is such an impractical suggestion 200 yards it's two football fields two football fields that's incredibly 
I was listening uh, to that interview, which you did a great job with, John. Um, and he, he put it in the term of seconds. And he said seven seconds. And after he said that, I sat there and I went one, one thousand, two, one thousand. Then I passed like seven cars by the time I got to four, like seven seconds between a, a truck and a car. I mean, commerce would come to a halt. But he used that measure in a similar case when it was snow, not dust, and a jury did not fight him on it, and he got a massive settlement for one of these similar sorts of actions or, or uh, chain reaction crashes. And it's, it's possible that, that even a truck that was allowing 200 yards in front of him, when suddenly he can't see, uh, and the car in front of him comes to a dead stop, and he can't even see that the car has stopped. I mean, yeah. we, we just don't know. I'll, I'll be really it's a situation to hear yeah. what all the evidence is going to show. I think we're just learning uh, about what happened there. And, and uh, I'm not ready to uh, sue. blame anybody for it. Or, well, I, of course, I would sue if I were involved. But uh, no, I'm not I'm not ready to <laughs> assign blame yet to this. I mean, but, I you know, that's that's the truth, though, isn't it? If you were involved, you would sue. If you were involved and you thought the other guy – wrecked your car, wrecked your life, killed your family member, you would sue because, hey, slow down, you idiot. This is dangerous. So I'll bet all of the people on the sidelines who are like, oh, here we go again, the attorneys, would have found an attorney if they had been involved in that, right? Uh, One last thing, and this could have been the headline for our podcast today because it's been the headline in the news. All four members of the ComEd 4 were found guilty on all those charges. We're awaiting sentencing, but it has to do with them... Well, what's the abbreviated version of what they were found guilty of? Austin, are you good at that? Or Eric, give me the snapshot on that. They're guilty of sort of a conspiracy to bribe Michael Madigan uh, by way of job placements and contracts and other favors in order to secure favorable legislation for the largest utility company in the state, which is ComEd. So if they're guilty of bribing him, then isn't he guilty too? I mean, he's someone's the guilty of taking a bribe. Why, someone right. took a bribe. I guess I mean, it's, it's impossible to say who, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this is very bad for Michael Madigan. And there was an interview with one of the jurors afterwards, and the juror basically told the reporter, "Yeah, this none of this would have happened without Mike Madigan. It's kind of he's kind of the key thing. He's the person being bribed in the first place." And she also As said the prosecutors try and get that juror on the Madigan trial. Yeah, let's find <laughs> let's find that lady. Well, she did say they were nice people. She says, you know, we, we we liked these people. They just got caught up in something. And I don't know, David Greising had a piece in the Tribune today that said that we do need to be a little more clear about what is politics and what is law-breaking. Uh, I agree. And so that's what – the the fact is this isn't a big story, which is – I mean, it's – no one's really talking about this much. I don't feel like there's some huge surge of – uh, calls to action or no. or a panic in Springfield about this, which is is kind of the point because we've had on average one public corruption conviction per week in Illinois for the last forty years, and that's stunning. So guilty verdicts do not stop corruption. If the guilty verdicts led to less corruption, we would be the least corrupt state. But we're not. And that gets to the point of what you need to change, which is state law. And there was a great piece in BEZ uh, today or yesterday by Dave McKinney on this. There is an entire section of state law called, in all caps, ethical principles for legislators. And it says, if you have an economic interest in something that you're voting on, you should probably recuse yourself from the vote. 
the problem is that these principles are, quote, intended only as guides to legislator conduct and not as rules meant to be enforced by disciplinary action, which means the Illinois legislature is operating on the honor code. There's no punishment. You don't have to recuse yourself from a vote if you have a conflict of interest, as you as you have to do in most other states. You either have to disclose your conflict of interest, recuse yourself, mandatory or both in most states, but not in Illinois. They get a reproachful look. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. Or or maybe uh, maybe just maybe the feds are wiretapping the whole thing and you go to prison. That's the only accountability mechanism. And that's why we see so many public corruption convictions, because our own laws don't take care of it. How do you explain, so, though, that smart people don't at least see that hammer coming? Because there isn't a bright line. So in the absence of those bright lines, you operate in this gray area where you see some people getting away with it. And that's what's really scary is guess what the feds aren't finding every corrupt lawmaker they're only finding some portion of them they're only that takes resources to prosecute these cases corruption is still rampant so you have to change state law and if you're at i I think this issue is the biggest disappointment of the pritzker administration because he has all of the chips to be able to make a lasting change on this issue in illinois which is one of the biggest issues in our state it affects everything in our state it makes voters apathetic. He has done little to nothing on this. So what is, uh, what and can the changes do? are clear. What, Just copy other states. What can he, right, but it would require the legislature too, right? But you want him to sure. at least push on that. Yes, but he has to lead on it. It would be interesting to go back and look at what a lot of these lawmakers said after the George Ryan conviction and after the Robert Glovich conviction and some of these other convictions uh, and compare it to what they were quoted as saying. In today, Capital Facts, the uh, Rich Miller's blog sort of did a, a rundown of all the official reaction. It has this sort of same tone every time. You're like, oh, we're finally getting our, our, our hands around this, and it's a shame what these people did, and we must do better in Illinois, and keep keep hearing the, the same thing. I really am curious to know whether any of these four, uh, particularly Mike McClain, uh, who is facing trial with uh, Madigan next year after his conviction this year, are going to – prior to sentencing, come to some sort of agreement with the federal government to flip and testify against Madigan. Uh, I think that McLean, in particular, if he decided to cooperate at this point uh, in exchange for a diminished sentence and perhaps uh, uh, maybe they drop the charges in the Madigan case, that, that these these four in particular would have a, a lot to add to a prosecution of Madigan and might, might even squeeze a guilty plea out of them. I don't know. Would Madigan cop a plea? Just say, okay, you got me. I'll plead guilty, but uh, you know, don't make me die in jail. Is is that a possible path? I doubt it, um, because he was the big fish they were going after all all, the whole time. Yeah. I don't, you know, there's not. He can't give up anybody or anything that they want now. Uh, so I don't, I don't think so. But, but uh, I, I don't know. I just was. I kept thinking about these, these, uh, these four who were convicted. They they must know more, and they maybe were willing to, you know, on the penalty of perjury, I suppose, with uh, at least uh, Ann Permajori, uh, who testified, might have to uh, uh, figure out a way to come back and, and offer some state's evidence. Yeah, Madigan's got to be shaking right now, because that was a heck of a warning shot. This uh, The sequel to this, the next season, what a season finale. We've got another season to come, because, woo-wee. Well, Brandon, do you think that any of them, the four, actually thought that they were okay? That, you know, 
maybe they would have changed some of their words, but that, yeah, this is the way politics get played. It's a little gray, but we're in the safe side of the gray zone. I wonder if they, you know, knew in their heart of hearts that what they were doing was wrong, but hope they didn't get found out. I'm sure that's part of the issue is that kind of what Austin was pointing out. The law is murky. It just, it's so tough to, to figure out that line between legal lobbying, politics as usual, and then what they are, uh, what they've been found guilty of, of doing. So um, I, I could I could see a situation where maybe they thought they were in the clear because there really is no clear rules on this except until you get caught. Well, that one juror that spoke said there are a lot of us have been in situations where, you know, we're not sure if we're doing the right thing or not, but we sort of go along with the flow. And I wonder if that mm-hmm. will at least come to the fore then during sentencing. I wonder if when they sentence these people, if they'll say, you were found guilty, but Madigan is the big fish and we're not going to make you go to jail for 10 years. Uh, some of them could, Oof. which is a lot, a lot. Um, well, that's why I wonder that if they're going to be able to extract some testimony from them at uh, at Madigan's trial. Sorry to say, Austin, I find this to be the most boring political story of all time. <laughs> you know, you're right, though, John. I mean, it, did, it didn't light up the phone lines. People weren't calling in when we were talking about it or when the newsroom was talking about it on a radio station. You could tell that it was just like Austin said. What a shame. But people are in Illinois, you know, you pay a corruption tax. And we were paying it and we're, we're tired of talking about it. We didn't want to talk about it. By the way, have you guys watched that show? I think it's on HBO Max right now. They just had, I think, the first episode of it, The Washington Plumbers. Ooh, no, but I want to see it. I saw a trailer. Is it good? Yeah, it really is fun. Ooh, uh, that's fun. It, it's Woody Harrelson and uh, whoever else in there. They're playing those, and it's it's played kind of comedically, right? Like sort of serious, but they're such bumble nuts that, you know, you <laughs> you – you you can't help but almost enjoy their. Uh, well, the real humans were, uh, like you said. Did you say bumble nuts? I said I think bumble that's a good one. nuts because we're yeah. not supposed to cuss on this podcast. Yeah, well, I, it's I, the only I one like on the entire internet that they don't want us to cuss on. When I was in college, uh, random fact, I uh, did an investigative study with our Pulitzer Prize winning journalism professor who to uncover oh, who Deep Throat was. By the Department of Children and. and uh, I don't know what we just heard there. But yeah, we were trying to figure out who Deep Throat was, and we got it wrong pretty uh, notably. Uh, but anyways, I my job was to read through the old FBI files, through microfiche of like thousands and thousands of pages about the plumbers, and I cannot wait to see this thing. I've got a quick recommendation here. It's what the little noise you heard in the background was. It's a, it's a new podcast called Think Twice, Michael Jackson. It's a 10-part series on on uh it's an audible original podcast uh i've just listened to the first couple of episodes fascinating the michael jackson story is just an amazingly fascinating story and it's very well told in this little podcast series so speaking of podcasts yeah new season of the making series drops with a two-part biographical deep dive on the most polarizing figure in media today and that is kanye west uh we talk with producers execs we talk with Jewish people, we talk with black Jewish people, we talk with everyone to get a full picture on this controversial figure and answer the question of, uh, did we create Kanye West as a culture? Are we somehow culpable for what he's become? Um, so that drops Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Both episodes or just the first one? Both episodes, two parts. Great. Austin, are you producing any movies these days or uh, 
You can watch Local One on YouTube. Yeah, yeah I had a recommendation, though. The um, This movie, Tampopo, T-A-M-P-O-P-O. It's a Japanese food western from the 80s, and it's a comedy, and it's kind of erotic. It's a great... This is a great movie, Tampopo. The, this, I highly recommend Tampopo. The genre is the Japanese erotic food western... Yeah, I'm missing any adjectives there. Fare. Yeah, yeah, the usual. <laughs> Is it from 1985? <laughs> wow, yep. Tampopo. Is it old? Wow. 85. T-A-M-P-O-P-O. Okay. Outstanding. Great movie. Your Money Matters, Monday the Thursday at 6. <laughs> That's your show. All right, fellas. I've got one more suggestion. Oh, okay. There's a great podcast called The Pivot Podcast with former NFL players. They bring on uh, NFL coaches, coaches from around the sporting world. They brought on South Carolina's Dawn Staley to talk about the women's game, um, the uh, all the kerfuffle that happened around Caitlin Clark and, and the South Carolina team versus Iowa. We saw that record-breaking uh, performance with the ratings and everything. It's a very powerful conversation with uh, the most important and the best coach in women's basketball today. So check that out. It's really, really good. I enjoyed it. Oh, I do have one more. Watch the uh, Boston bombing uh, documentary. It's a three-parter, so only about three hours of your life. It's really interesting to get some footage and stuff. It, it was really interesting to live that in the news world. Uh, that week was insane, and then that night of the chase, and then the next day finding the guy in the boat. Yeah. But like, it, like to to talk to and and get video, including I don't know if you guys remember the 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 bombers had ki- had basically kidnapped a guy to use his car for part of the trip, and he escaped. Well, they have him in an interview about that what that was like, and it is so harrowing. And to relive those that whole week as it played out um, was really really interesting and well done. What's the uh, streaming service it's on, and what's it the time? Netflix. I don't know. I would just search Boston here. Well, we have I have Google at my hands. Um, does, do they go into because I seem to remember that there was some crowdsourcing that was going on and trying to find yes. the Boston Bombers and they got it wrong, right? Yeah, they go into the, how dangerous it was to release the photographs of the two um, before yeah. they had them. And they talk about how Boston police wanted those photographs out there. The FBI wanted a little more time to try and find these guys to avoid exactly what happened uh i think a lot of people forget a cambridge police officer was murdered by the two bombing suspects and then there was a shootout in waterton uh nearby that just rattled a lot of people it was i when you live it so quickly in the moment i think you forget some of those details it's american manhunt the boston marathon bombing on netflix that's uh, John Hansen. You heard from Brandon Pope, of course, today. Look for his interview with the mayor-elect, Austin Berg, and Eric Zorn. I'm John Williams. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. And we'll drop another podcast on you next week. I wonder sometimes, Eric, if we should bring back the recommendations component of the podcast, where at the end we sort of sign off with something we're eating, drinking, watching, or listening to. Yeah, and we could, and we could actually think about it ahead of time a little bit. <laughs> and actually, although although I Hanson, Hanson's was great. I mean, they were they were all great. So I'm I'm looking forward to all of them. But we can talk. Well, let's ask next week to see if people want to do it before we actually do it. Okay, fellas. Hey, good job. Uh, we'll be watching your stuff, Brandon. Uh, thanks, thanks both. Yeah, of you, I can't wait to see that. I'll yeah. Okay, see you guys. Toodles. See you. Take care, Chris.
Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 